I'm here with Barbara Dos Santos. Barbara is a research analyst who focuses on breaking down data to solve problems related to climate policy and LATAM. She's from Brazil, but has lived in the U.S. for the past six years. Barbara is currently in the D.C. area if you want to check her out. She's also a clever hybrid. Barbara, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for, for inviting me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. And, and I also thank you so much for, for admitting me to the Clever Hybrid Club. I, I know this is a very select club and I'm really happy to be here. Hey, you're welcome. Welcome to the tribe. How is the situation in DC right now? Yeah, there's a lot of things happening at the same time. First, we have COVID and it was very intense, uh, especially for the, the immigrant community. But then we started adapting and we started having the protests uh, about Black Lives Matter. DC, as everybody might have seen on the news, was one of the, the main stages of this. I think that something that came out of that that is really interesting is that people started talking a lot about the segregation that happens in DC and how unequal our city is. I always joke, we have one DC on West and one on the East. The 16th street divides the city between poor and rich, between brown and black and white. So I think with all this that is still happening, we are able to have discussions about that, about what's happening in the city. Just recently as well, we started bringing something that has been in our minds for a long time, which is the statehood. I'm optimistic about our future. I think it's going to be great. But to, yeah, so answering your question, things here are a bit crazy, but I think we are going in a good direction. Wow, I didn't know about the statehood thing. We'll have to see what happens with that. Even... When we think about the immigrant community, the African-American community, this will make a big difference for our most vulnerable communities. Because when you think about the budgets, for example, DC budget has to go through Congress and it's very hard to address some situation uh, with the urgency that is necessary. In the suburbs surrounding DC with the COVID crisis, they were able to get funding through their state government really quickly to address food insecurity, which in D.C. is a lot harder to do because unless you have some reserve specific for a certain topic, nothing goes through without Congress approval. So this is something that I think perpetrates inequality. I am really excited that we are in an environment where we might be able to address this. I am a PhD student in political science. This is my jam. Oh, okay. <laughs> that makes me feel better. <laughs> well, going from there, you actually have quite a hybrid plan here. You're a research analyst who is not an academic. It's very rare. You plan to work with companies not writing academic papers after you finish your PhD. What led to that decision? Yes, I'm a big hybrid in, in many ways, but I think when I started my PhD, I was maybe 50-50 deciding on being an academic or not. In the past five years since I started the PhD, I realized that I really don't want to be an academic, and, and there are too many reasons for that. The academic institution, it's a very oppressive institution for people of color, and, and it, it's an institution that demands a lot, and it's also almost impossible to make it. My colleagues who are leaving their PhDs now, 
most of them will go into adjunct positions to work 80 hours a week to get paid almost a minimum wage per hour. Then to get a tenure track job, you need to be producing a lot of research. But when you are in the underpaid and overworked situation, you really can't do research. So it's a system that is almost impossible. Then the other problem I have with academia is really how academia engages with the knowledge that it's producing. There are some movements trying to change this, but the majority of the knowledge produced in academia stays within academia. Research is published on journal articles. The only academics in your field read uh, the knowledge is really not going out outside. I, I realized once I got my PhD in Washington that I, I could actually do a lot more with my life than what I, I previously thought. I grew up in a, in a low-income family in Brazil. My range of opportunities in life were severely reduced. So when I got here, I realized that I can do so much more with my life. I started getting really interested in so many other things. I talked to so many other people who have been engaging in different groups, organizations, and conversations. I've been learning how valuable my skills are in many other industries. So I think it's a combination of really a disillusion with the academic system and the access to opportunities that I could never dream that I could have. This really made me try to jump from academia, from this um, scholastic engagement with thought and knowledge to something a bit more practical and, and useful to the real world. That makes sense. I knew about the overworked and underpaid, but I didn't really know that only people within the industry read it. That's almost like having an important file on your computer and not even uploading it. What's up with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so most of the journals are actually paid and they're so expensive that only universities are able to actually afford them. Political science is becoming a more and more analytical and quantitative science. It's also very inaccessible, the knowledge itself. So if a person who is not a political scientist or doesn't have analytical training, they would not understand anything in that research. So in many ways, it's an ivory tower. Mm, yeah, it's, it's a very 20th century model. So I can't wait to see how you shake it up. Yeah, me. I think I, I'm, I'm excited for the future. I think it's going to be great. And one of the reasons why I decided to come to DCU is really because I thought that here I would have access to opportunities that maybe in a state university I wouldn't have and, and, and turned out to be true. Here I've been having great opportunities and I've been trying to be out there. I think it's paying off. Very cool. You already mentioned a little bit about about what an academic analyst does, what's the largest difference between doing that and being a commercial analyst? So when you are in the business world, the analyst is the person who really gathers all the information with the focus of solving a problem. So let's say our company wants to invest in an emerging market. We're going to talk about that later, but we want to invest in the emerging market. So what is the best route? What is the best industry and best country to do that? So the commercial analyst is a person who really gathers a lot of information to answer those specific questions, but at the end, we have an impact in how we make decisions for our business. 
as opposed to academia, how we analyze a bunch of information to create new knowledge. So in my dissertation, for example, I'm analyzing how interest groups affect climate policy. And I am looking at this from a perspective of, I want to learn something that we didn't know before. Then when we are in the company, I want to learn this so we can solve our problem. That's why I think I'm more attracted to the business side of the analysis part than the academic. Yes, I am passionate about knowledge, but I want to do something in the real world with the knowledge that I'm acquiring. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's almost like you're turning coal into diamonds. You take that raw information, make it into something valuable. That's really cool. Yeah, and I agree. (laughs) That's why I want to do it. That's really nice. So now we're going to test your knowledge. We're going to get some of your expertise for our listeners. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. (laughs) Unfortunately, right now, there's a lot of xenophobia or prejudice against Chinese people. You were actually in China studying at the Shanghai Open University for a little bit. What did you learn about the Chinese culture and business sense while you were there? Spending that summer in Shanghai was was amazing. Something I told people when I came back is that I saw so much of Brazilian culture in China. Maybe not just Brazilian, but also Latino in general. People are surprised, but you know that hustle that mi gente has, that thing of making the ends meet. And it's not just hustle for making money. It's really the hustle for survival. You hustle or die. You innovate or die. There is... One scene that I'll never forget, it was, I think, my first week there. The university was taking us to a field trip. So we were leaving pretty early in a bus, crossing through Shanghai. And there was a window in a wall. And you saw this was like a house. So they opened a window in the house. This place was like right on the street, a place where if you had a house there, you would not have a window. You could see clearly that they made that window just for this. And there was a line outside, and they were selling breakfast in the morning rush hour. I never forget this. This is like the type of hustle that you see in China. People are innovative, but it's not like innovating like Silicon Valley type of innovating, just creating apps and hoping that people you consume. It's really innovating on a sense of like on the ground, solving the problems of the people because you either innovate or die. This is something I see a lot in the poorer parts of Latin America. This is the type of hustle and innovation that the Chinese people have that I think a lot of times for Americans is a bit harder to grasp. But this was so evident for me everywhere in the street. I saw this everywhere. So I think as our countries go grow closer to China, we'll see that we have a lot in common even if we don't have anything in common with their politics or sometimes even in how they, they approach economic matters, we have a lot in common with their people. That's a really good example. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I have a picture if you want to see someday. <laughs> I, was so, I was so impressed <laughs> <Okay>. by it. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get a picture of that. That's amazing. <laughs> So going back to your original comment about emerging markets, what is an emerging market? Several international organizations have their own definition 
of emerging markets. But in general, you, when you think about emerging markets, you think about middle-income countries who are in the path of development or who are in the path from development. Russia is, is a good example of an emerging market who, who was developed and now it's not developed anymore. But hopefully they will go back to, to being developed. So you think about countries with middle-income in a path development, industrialized countries, even if sometimes they're not fully industrialized, and also countries with stable institutions. Some examples are Mexico, Brazil, India, China. Then if we think about Latin America, we also have Colombia, Argentina, Chile. If you think in Africa, we have South Africa, we have Nigeria, even some of the post-Soviet countries in Europe. So those countries that are in the process of developing, hopefully we'll get to that level of mature developed economies sometime in the near future. How do you feel that being bilingual has been an asset for your advocacy and for your work? Well, it has really been crucial. I could only realize my dream of studying abroad by coming to the U.S. So first I had to learn English. Each language has its own way of interpreting the world. I think you get to see things from a different perspective, but also you really get to, of course, communicate with more people than otherwise you would. We're just able to think about the problems ahead of us in a different way. Of course, that helps with jobs and that helps with communicating with people, but it really also helps us just for ourselves or to think about life and how we react to problems. That sounds a bit crazy, but I think it just changes our brains. No, no, it's not crazy. It's actually been shown that if you speak more than one language, you have a, a different perspective on things. Like you said, every language has its own way of seeing the world. Yeah, yeah. I, I notice this a lot in my daily life. Going from English to Portuguese and sometimes English to Spanish, and when I'm in class, for example, studying Chinese from English to Chinese. And it's interesting now studying Chinese in the US because I've always studied a language, either English or, or Spanish, in my native language in Brazil. And now learning a fourth language in my second language, it's also it's very interesting. It's really interesting seeing how my brain is so powerful from going from one thing to the other. It just generates this elasticity, I guess. Yeah, you're giving your brain a definite workout. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I speak five languages too. So sometimes you're like, what language were we talking in again? Give me a second. Yeah. And I think the most interesting <laughs> moments is when my brain just constructs a sentence in the most efficient way. So half is in Portuguese and half is in English. It's just feels so efficient to say this way instead of trying to say this, the same thing in Portuguese versus English. I know, right? <laughs> ah, bilingual problems. Yeah. <laughs> but how did you learn English? How old were you? Oh, that's you a whole it? ordeal. As I mentioned before, I grew up in a low-income family. Learning languages for us was impossible. As a child, the dream of my life was to learn English. I actually have my seven-year-old diary. Every year, I would ask my parents on my birthday to put me in a language school. That was the 90s in Brazil. It was incredibly 
expensive to find this study in English. Today is a lot easier. You have a lot of NGOs and a lot of accessible schools, and you can even learn online. At that time, it wasn't like that. So it was really hard, and I didn't have English in school, despite the fact that I should have, but we just didn't have, have a teacher. So when I was in high school, I had an opportunity to start working. So I got a part-time job at 16, and that's what I did with my money. I started studying English when I was 17. That was my last year of high school. I got a scholarship in a very fancy school in my city. I was volunteering in, in a project they had, and in exchange, I would get a scholarship to study English. Then when I started college, I was working in a language school. So throughout college, I, I was also able to study English for free at the place where I was working, and I also studied French. Then I also had the opportunity in my senior year to study abroad, which for me was in the U.S. I had a scholarship for that too. So spending that semester in the U.S. was what really pushed my, my English to a new level. Then I decided to come for grad school. Since I came for my semester abroad, I, I haven't studied English anymore, at least not formally. The fact that today I speak English very naturally was really because I worked so hard for that, because I, that was something that I really wanted so much. It was hard. It was a long road, but here I am now. Yeah, that's an amazing story. I know it takes a lot of determination, but you made sure you got it all through paid OJT. That is what I'm talking about. You mentioned in a LinkedIn post something that I thought would be really relevant right now. A few months ago, you felt depressed when you didn't pass one of the qualifying exams for your PhD program, but you learned how to detach your success or failure from you as a person. How do you think many people who've lost their jobs recently or had to downsize their companies can apply that advice? Yeah, it is hard. It's hard. It took me several months of therapy to actually be able to separate who I am as a person from who I am professionally and, and to see that a professional failure, it's not a personal failure. It is hard. And, and I get it for people who are losing so much now and you might be in a position where you can't put food on the table. You are not a failure. You are in an environment where maintaining yourself is becoming possible. Maintaining your company is becoming possible. The number one thing you should do is to seek help, mental health help or financial help. I mentioned before community, and this is where community matters so much. We cannot go through this alone. And living in the U.S. as a Latino woman, I know this is the experience of most minority groups. Being here as an immigrant, you are in a country that is not your homeland, and a lot of times you're not even welcome here. So you really can't do this alone. And if you need help, go for help. Even if it's a friend to whom you can vent. And I really encourage you, take care of your mental health. Uh, if you need a therapist, get a therapist. If you need a psychiatrist, get a psychiatrist. We have never been giving anything. And we were never going to be giving anything. So you just need to keep fighting. When you are in a situation, I don't think there's any words that people can tell you that would encourage you. We just need to find that power, that strength inside of us, 
and get help if you need. Just keep pushing it and keep fighting. Because it is going to be worth it. At some point, things are going to happen. And things are going to turn around. I've been there many, many times. So I, I think this one thing that I can say from experience. Very good advice. We have another group that we want to talk to now also. You're a mentor for Brazilian students through BRASA, the Brazilian Studies Association. There's lots of young people around the world who are trying to plan. Maybe their plan got derailed because of everything going on. What would you say to those young people? The effects of the crisis have been touching my life personally. My partner lost his job and we are there, I guess. You know, this crisis that we're going through, it is temporary. It, it could be an opportunity for us to see something that we haven't seen before. In our case, my partner is explaining to do an MBA now, which is something that he was not considering before. What is around you that you might not have considered before that, that could be a good opportunity for you? The, the advice of finding that passion inside of you and keep fighting, it's something that I keep saying because... This is really what gets me through. I've been in really difficult situations to the point that I didn't have food. I was sustained by my community for four months. I was completely sustained by my community. You can either keep fighting or you can give up. And I think for most of us, if you have that passion, giving up is not a, an option. There are other opportunities out there. Just pay attention, talk to people, ask questions. Something that has worked very well for me is to be vulnerable, to tell people when I need help, to tell people when I'm struggling. If you don't let the people who care about you know that you're struggling, you're never going to get the resources, the help that you need. Even if it's just a hug, let your community care for you and care for people in your community as well. Everything that I said, I would bring down to three things. The first one is the importance of community which is what some people call networking, some people call family, but it's really having a community, either a professional community or a personal community. The second thing is find the passion inside of you and keep fighting. What is that one thing that for you giving up is not an option? The third one is if the way that you are now doesn't work, find another way. Find another opportunity. Pay attention to the opportunities around you. It might not be as glamorous as, as you want, but it might be something. So just, just keep pushing, keep fighting, and support each other. And I know that sounds very kumbaya, but it, it, it is what it is. That's how people who are not in a position of privilege, that's the only way you can move on. Because no one is going to give us anything. We really need to fight for everything. And you can't fight alone. Yeah, that's very true. No man is an island. We all need help. Thank you so much, Barbara, for your time. We learned a lot from you today. Some things I wasn't expecting, so thank you. Thank you. It's really great talking to you, getting to know a little bit more about you and... I really hope that this has been helpful. Anyone is free to reach out to me. You can find me on LinkedIn. My are most interactive on Twitter. Feel free to reach out. I am a big fan of helping each other. So I am here for you. 
Yeah, definitely. LinkedIn, of course, is Barbara Dos Santos, but what's your Twitter? Actually, my LinkedIn is Barbara S. Dos Santos. My Twitter is Barbara underscore Dos Santos. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite listening app to hear other episodes. For more info about our courses, editing services, or our scholarship program, look at our website, cleverhybrids.com. You can also find the transcripts and show notes for our episodes there. This is Gabby V. Until next time, learn by doing and asking. Thank <music> you.